hardworking drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, Zach Albetta here, and welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. Today I'm talking with my friend Kevin Leon, who just recently landed the touring gig with St. Paul and the Broken Bones. Before that, he put in nearly a decade on the Atlanta scene doing just about everything a drummer can do here. Original bands, corporate bands, experimental jazz, composing and recording his own original music, and teaching. He's a native of Birmingham, Alabama, where he formed friendships with Harry Myrie and Chris Fryer, as well as a couple of the members of St. Paul, which led to him getting the call from them last summer. We are coming up on our 200th episode of Working Drummer Podcast, and we'll be celebrating this milestone with a live event in Nashville on Thursday, January 10th. We'll be having a roundtable discussion with a few of our favorite guests from the past four years, and we're hoping to land a very special guest for a live interview. More details on that as they solidify. So if you'll be in the Nashville area, put us down for the evening of Thursday, January 10th. We hope to see you there, and if you're elsewhere, we'll be live streaming this event, so be on the lookout for that. Please visit us at workingdrummer.net where you can check out our entire archive of nearly 200 past episodes and learn more about who we are and what we're about. If you want to support what we do here, along the right side of the homepage, you'll see the buttons for PayPal and Patreon, and every donation in any amount is greatly appreciated. You can also follow us on social media and post pics and videos of your gigs using the hashtag WorkingDrummer. We love seeing what you all are up to out there. It is time once again to check in with our buddy Arjuna Contreras. He's been keeping us surprised of his transition from Texas to Nashville, but this week he's got an update from the road with Reverend Horton Heap. Hey, Matt. Hey, brother. How are you, man? I'm good. I'm good, except for the fact that I'm freezing. You're freezing? <laughs> We're up in Minneapolis oh. right now. <laughs> yeah. That you were and, in Texas. Uh, no, the quietest place that I could find is standing outside of our bus right now. Oh, man, I'm sorry. Well, listen, <laughs> and, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll keep this quick for sure. No, no, we're, we're in a garage. Like, uh, I don't know, have you ever played First Avenue in Minneapolis? No, I haven't. Uh, it's, you know, it's like the famous venue where, you know, like they shot part of like Prince's Purple Rain, you know. And, oh, wow. Uh, and he's, you know, he played there a few times and. It, it's, it, it was built at, at like an old bus depot. So like the tour buses pull into this area where like probably like Greyhounds used to pull in. So yeah. I'm kind of in an enclosed space, mm-hmm. but I was, uh, I was out walking through downtown Minneapolis a little bit earlier and uh, I almost turned into a, to an icicle. It's good. <laughs> it is cold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How, how was your Thanksgiving? It was great. It was great. I went up and, you know, visited my folks in Wisconsin and uh, I was up there for the whole week and then uh, had to leave on the day after on Black Friday. I flew down to yeah <clears throat> to Dallas. You know, we had a couple of days of rehearsals over the weekend in preparation for leaving on this, this Christmas tour that we just left for. Uh, first show was last night in Omaha. How'd that it went go? Really well. Okay. It was good. You know, it was really well. It went really well. There's a few, few kinks, obviously, but uh, tonight should be, you know, even better. But it's it's a fun show. You know, that Reverend Horton he put out a Christmas like rockabilly record a few years back. So we're doing like a lot of the songs off of that. 
in addition to like the, the, the regular stuff that we do in our show. And a band called the Blasters is opening the show. Junior Brown is the is the uh, the next act, and he's kind of a kind of a legend in like the country world, especially in Texas. He used to be in a band called Asleep at the Wheel. Yeah, yeah, you know, and for they sure. Were, yeah, you know, like the you know they're carrying the torch of like Western swing, like you know groups like Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys. So his drummer has um, been having some health issues. This really great longtime drummer of his named Scott Matthews. He's been having some some issues, and so he couldn't make this first week of the tour. So I'm actually pulling double duty this week. I'm oh, okay. Playing playing with playing with Junior Brown for his set, and then uh, changing into my more festive Christmas attire <laughs> for the Reverend Horton Heat set, and then jumping up and doing our thing. Yeah. So and, and that just kind of got sprung on me yesterday, oh. about three hours before the first show. Wow! <laughs> so, I was yeah, going to ask you what you did like to prepare. No, yeah, there was basically nothing. <laughs> <laughs> now, what I should say is, is Junior was a guest of ours during that week of uh, shows that we did in Austin last month, mm-hmm. where he he was he was one of the special guests that for two for two nights of that six night run. He came up on stage and we backed him up playing his stuff. Like we played like six or seven of his songs. So, you know, I, I, I know about six or seven of them and I've heard a bunch of other songs of his. You know, he was actually on this Christmas tour with us last year as well. Okay. okay. So I'm pretty familiar with his music and also, you know, his style, like for the drummers, he he wants like snare and brushes. That's basically what his gig is. Okay. So it went really well last night. He was really really happy with how it went and he's notorious uh for being hard on drummers so they actually had a another drummer that showed up for that i guess was potentially going to play this week with them Mm -hmm. and he was dismissed before the gig actually is why (laughs) is that that would have yet last night was supposed to be his first night and he didn't make it to the to the show time so he didn't, you I'm not like, exactly sure. What, <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure what exactly went down, but um, wow, they asked me like kind of like after I think they sound checked, they asked me if I would be interested in oh, fitting in for wow. the week. And, and, okay. and as they're asking me that, I'm seeing the other drummer packing up his snare drum and cymbal and oh, heading out to his car. So yeah, it was kind of dark and like. You know, I, I felt bad because they they're standing there talking to me like while the guy is packing up. While so obviously, it, 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 yeah, it had just gotten it had just gotten it had just went down basically. Shit got real, so man. So I went in <laughs> real fast. <laughs> <laughs> so I ran and I ran and asked Jim, you know, the rev, if if he was cool with that because you know it's a little bit weird and in, in certain situations probably wouldn't be the coolest thing to do. Um, yeah, but he, you know, he reveres like Junior and uh, and really, you know, thinks a lot of him. And you know, in 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 an effort, you know, in, to keep the show, you know, really happen. And he's like, "Yeah, go ahead and do it, man. It'll be fun. You know, just 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 don't get sent home by Junior because then what are we going to do for our show? <laughs> you get fired off. You get fired. You get fired off his gig. Are you going to be able to play ours, or are you going to just have to go home?" That's a trip. But you know what? That's really but, cool. Uh, that's a really cool point. Like, like there's a show, there's a, there's a performance that's happening and, and, and you have to be, 
I mean, it, that you were aware to to ask the Rev, like, hey, man, can I, are you okay with this? Because they're going to see me on mm-hmm. stage, and then I'm going to come out with you. I mean, granted, with the reindeer, right. with the with the Christmas, <laughs> and the reindeer ears, I mean, I know that. But yeah, yeah, the Santa Claus hat. <laughs> sure, I get that. Um, wow. But okay. yeah, it, it's the kind of thing where, you know, like, it, you know, it could... It could be considered like a little bit, you know, JIV positive. So like <laughs> a little jive if I if I were to just kind of like assume that he would have been cool with it, you know. And and next thing you know, like I'm playing, you know, it, uh, it looks like oh well, who is he really the drummer for, you know? Like mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of and it's just a little bit unprofessional. So yeah, like I knew right away. It's like I needed to talk to Jim and. He actually thanked me for asking him, and so I felt good about that. Well, listen, thanks again, man. I'm going to let you go. I'm going to throw this on the episode and get ready to uh, turn it around for the morning. Thanks, Matt. Sounds hey. good, man. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, brother. bye. Bye-bye. So this was a really fun talk I had with Kevin. As I was editing it, I realized we left a couple topics hanging, uh, but that was just because we kept reminding each other of cool stuff to talk about. Uh, He's a a funny guy, very thoughtful, and and super creative. So I hope you dig this convo with Kevin Leon. I've been wanting to to talk to you before the St. Paul and the Broken Bones Mm -hmm. thing happened, because you're one of the Atlanta guys, and you're a badass and a sweetheart. Um, but but now we have even more to talk about with with the, sure, yeah, the yeah. St. Paul thing. So you've got some great interviews with some of the Atlanta cats. I, I listened to the um, most of the Will Growth one last night. Will is that so was cool. Great. He's an awesome dude. Yeah, killer player too. Dude. God, his hands are crazy. I know. We talked about that traditional grip thing, yeah, because yeah, he's still like he's he's got it down. He's one of those yeah. players who just like has a beautiful traditional grip, and yeah. it's not a technical liability to him in any way. Yeah, yeah, the way it was to me. <laughs> yeah, he's like he owns that shit. Yeah, I didn't know that he auditioned for Zach Brown Band, and now I'm wondering if he. It had to have been the same audition that Fryer did, right? To get that gig, probably. Because um, I remember Fryer telling me all about that. Yeah. We'll, we'll get to Fryer. Okay. Um, so you you just you just returned from your first big run with St. Paul and the Broken yeah. Bones. It started in what August September? Uh, oh shit! <laughs> September. Okay. Cool. September. Cool. Uh, so how was it? Uh, it was amazing. It was crazy. Yeah. It was, it was a wild ride. Um, uh. Yeah, I mean, it was a whirlwind. It still hasn't really sunk in what happened. <laughs> I mean, it's I, I we just got home, or I just got home. What's today? Thursday. Yeah. Uh, so three, four days ago. Right. Um, and Aaron and I, my girlfriend, uh, took a vacation after that. Right. Thankfully, uh, that's a whole other. Uh, Aside, but Thanksgiving in Ireland. Yeah, oh, it was amazing. That's and, the way to uh, do it. It was so beautiful, and we we did not think we would have the resources to do vacation like that mm-hmm. anytime soon. She's in grad school, um, so we've been saving. And then this gig fell in my lap, and I was like, "Well, I'm already going to be over there. Right? Let's make it happen." So yeah, it was yeah. it was amazing. But uh, yeah, so we extended it about a week and did a vacation. But I mean, leading up to that, the tour was. Fantastic. It was so much fun, man. So how much time between you got the gig and you're on stage with them? Um, on stage, the first gig, it was like two weeks, I think. But the first time I played with them, 
maybe 12 hours, something like that. <laughs> wow. So basically what happened was um, Chad Fisher, this old friend of mine uh, from Birmingham, amazing trombonist, uh, composer, band leader, uh, is, is a trombonist in, in St. Paul, right. um, called me. I was in a studio session with a bunch of our mutual friends, uh, mm-hmm. Kelly and, and Terminus Horns and all them. Um, and... I got a call from Chad, and I hadn't heard from him in a while. Mm-hmm. I was like, this is weird. So I picked up, and uh, uh, he said, I got two questions for you. What are you doing tomorrow, and how would you feel about being gone until Thanksgiving? <laughs> and I was like, oh, uh, that sounds cool to me. Let me check with Erin and yeah. see how she feels about it. And I, I called her, and I think the phone conversation went something like, uh, hey, so... Uh, St. Paul just called me and asked me to go on the road with him. What do you think? She was like, are you a dumbass? Yeah, you should probably do that. (laughs) Um, uh, So, yeah, it was, they were in the middle of rehearsals, and uh, they needed to find a sub really quick. Um, So they, I I talked to Jesse Phillips, the MD and one of the primary songwriters in the band, and he sent me a Dropbox with all the stuff I needed to know, and Mm -hmm. I just... In the middle of the session, the horns were recording. My drums were set up where the horns were. So I get this call and I'm like stressing out, like, oh my God, I got to, I got to go home. I got to work on this stuff. Right. Um, but I couldn't because they had to finish their session. So I'm like sitting in the control room with headphones on while they're cutting horns, Ugh. like just speed charting stuff out. As soon as they're done, I go and like, uh, I break down my drums super fast, go home, uh, and then I pull as close to an all-nighter as I could right. before my brain was just like, I'm done. So they like um, they needed you in Birmingham the next day. Yeah. So so I stayed up most of the night, charted out. I think there were 11 tunes they gave me. They said, just get familiar with these, and I charted out nine of them uh-huh. um, and just listened constantly from the second they called me. Um, listened the entire way to Birmingham, which is like two, two-and-a-half-hour drive. And, um, uh, God, I was so tired. I can't uh, imagine. It was... It, but it was almost like an out-of-body experience because I was so tired right. and I was so excited and I was so nervous. Yeah. All at the it's same adrenaline time. Adrenaline is just jacked. and Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, the good thing is that I had the wherewithal to, to journal through this whole process. Oh, cool. So, uh, so I'm excited to go back and look at that stuff. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, in the moment, it was like a, it was so surreal. It was right. like a dream. Um, and... Uh, so in the rehearsals, I'm basically I'm basically reading this stuff uh-huh. in these shorthand charts. Let's put a pin in that because I have some thoughts on the charting process. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, I'm sort of reading these things and trying trying to use the charts as little as I have to, mm-hmm. just from the the stuff I've shoved into my head over the past eight hours. Um, but for the most part, I'm reading this stuff. We basically played through all the songs that I charted out uh-huh. and they said, okay, let's take a lunch break. And so during the lunch break, I sit down and I chart out the last two tunes and I read those and they they were uh, understandably nervous. Mm-hmm. They were like, we needed a last minute sub. Chad recommended you. We, we all knew each other in some capacity, mm-hmm. but I was only close with like Chad and one of the other guys. Right. Um, Alan, the trumpet player. Um, uh, so they knew me. But, right, you know they hadn't seen me in years, and if you don't work out, then they're super fucked. Yeah, they're just like <laughs> they. Yeah, 
so it was just sort of like, we need somebody now. And I came in and the, the rehearsals went great. Mm-hmm. And Paul at the end of the rehearsal was like, this alleviated a lot of stress. Everything feels great. And, uh, uh, we can, we like clicked really easily. It didn't feel like I was in the room with a bunch of strangers, which like I said, I wasn't cause I had met all right, of them right. at least once or twice before this. Um, but yeah, like an hour or two into rehearsal work, like, cutting up and telling dirty jokes and it was just like immediate it was it was really really cool and really easy cool and uh and from the band's perspective like what a crazy moment in time because mm -hmm. they're about to do three months of touring right in the u.s and europe they're releasing this new record they're they're booked on uh what jimmy kimmel live yeah that and uh something else wasn't wasn't Kimmel like your first gig with them I'm trying no 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 Kimmel was the third the fourth gig okay. so um yeah the reason it was so important for them to get a sub in there so quickly was because not only is this a tour but this is an album release tour they right. just released a new album called Young Sick Camellia right and uh so we did we did uh, one all-day rehearsal, the one that was like the day after I got the call, mm-hmm. and then we had the weekend off. During that weekend, I came home and played some wedding gigs and taught some makeup lessons. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, I go back to Birmingham the following Monday, and I'm like listening on every break at every wedding gig, just right. trying to cram this stuff into my head. And um, uh, then I go back on Monday, and then we have three days of rehearsal, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of full production rehearsal, crew, sound lights, everything. Right. Um, and, uh, uh, then we had like, I, I had one day to go home and get my stuff together. And then we did Tuscaloosa. These were album release shows. So they were smaller rooms, mm-hmm. but they, uh, but they were all sold out. Um, and, it was, it was a big deal because this was the album release show, right. right? So we did Tuscaloosa, Birmingham, Nashville. And Nashville was an early show, like early afternoon. And literally is the last note of that Nashville show. It was like, go, go, go. We, we uh, have to get changed. Uh, crew's breaking everything down. We go to the airport and fly straight to L.A. And then uh, go to sleep, wake up, play Kimmel the next morning. Wow. Um, yeah, it was, it was a whirlwind. Wow. It was crazy. That's nuts. So, um, why do do you know why you were needed? I don't know. I and I didn't ask any questions. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, all I know is that Andrew, their drummer, needed some time off, mm-hmm. um, and uh, so yeah, I got the call, and I was just like, yeah, right, yeah. right. And it's it's weird when you get a call like that, uh, whether it's kind of the emergency situation that you were in, or if it's a more gradual, just kind of like new drummer joining a band situation. Right. My, you know, my morbid curiosity always leads me to wonder, like, why am I needed? Right. Yeah. <laughs> what I mean, happened to the last cat? Sure. Yeah. Um, and I mean, there's a little bit of that, but mostly I just, it's not my business. Like, right. You know, I'm just going to. Uh, if if they need me, I will hit things for them. You know? <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah. Uh, so I didn't ask many questions, and I just stepped in, and it all worked out great. Good. Good. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned the charting. Yeah. What uh, what what are your thoughts about that, and how did you approach it? Um, so I have to I have to name drop right now. Drop. Um, uh, 
That's the sound of the name, the name hitting the floor. Uh, one of my best friends is a guy named Harry Myrie in Nashville. We've um, interviewed him. You have? Yeah. Wait, Harry was on this podcast? Yeah. No way. I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, shit. That's crazy. Yeah. Harry is one of my best friends on the planet. Um, uh, and, uh, God, I gotta go back and listen to that one. Yeah, it's, was, it's one of our best interviews. I, I bet it is. It's gotten, like, one of the best responses. Harry is the man. He's, yeah. like, the greatest ever. Yeah. Uh, phenomenal player, phenomenal musician, um, and above all, like, phenomenal person. Yeah. Um, uh, crazy intelligent, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and really interesting to talk to, uh, obviously. Right. <laughs> um, but the charting thing came from Harry, because Harry... Uh, Harry and I went to school at University of Alabama at Birmingham for like a year mm-hmm. together. We actually went to high school together for a wow. minute at John Carroll in Birmingham. But uh, we knew of each other. We were like the two drummers in the high school. And there was this, I think there was a sort of unspoken rivalry. We were both like, oh, this, that's that dude. That's that motherfucker. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but we didn't really get to know each other until we went to, to UAB. And then Harry went to Berkeley from there, mm-hmm. but we became instant friends. So we kept in touch through all that. And while he's up there, he studies with all sorts of people. Um, one of them is Mike Mangini, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure you talked about this, but, um, uh, Mike is known for playing incredibly fast and all the crazy technical stuff. Yeah. But he's also a master of speed charting apparently. Mm-hmm. And he has this whole system uh, that Harry showed to me. Uh, I think the example Harry gave me was Wonderwall, maybe mm-hmm. the Oasis tune. Because yeah. I was asking him about it, and he sent me a picture of the chart. And uh, you have to sort of see it to understand it, but it's it's really it sort of looks like Greek if you don't know what you're looking at. But mm. two minute explanation makes it make sense, yeah. and it basically reads left to right, line by line, like a book. Yeah. And you're just using as much shorthand as you can. Harry is a master of it. I looked at his. Actually, last I was over at Harry's place like, uh, I don't know, three, four months ago, just for like a bro hang. We just like set up drums and played and ate food and talked shit yeah. for a couple of days. Um, and uh, I was trying to read one of his charts, and it was almost impossible because he uses so much shorthand. Right. Um, but yeah, he showed me this and that thing's been a lifesaver hmm. for like pretty much any gig that I've done since then. That's been like a sort of last minute thing, or even if it's not a last minute thing, if you right. have a lot of material to learn, yeah. um, it, it makes charting really, really easy. I wonder if he's done a video on that. Cause I mean, he's, he's got his whole YouTube. I think he series. has actually. Yeah. Yeah. You should, I don't know the name of the video, but if you're, I, w- I would assume a bunch of your listeners are Harry Myrie fans. Yeah. Who isn't Harry's right. greatest. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I think he has done a chart, uh, uh video on his charts. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can vouch for it. That shit has saved my life. Uh, in every situation from getting the St. Paul call to learning Sam Birchfield tunes to learning a bunch of tunes for like Emerald Empire, the band, right, the wedding right. band, the father daughter dances. Yeah, exactly. Weird and, um, yeah, yeah. To, uh, when I first moved to Atlanta and didn't, didn't have any work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got a call from this dude named Lefty Williams. <laughs> uh, do you know Lefty? I don't. That's a but whole, I like him already. <laughs> oh my God. That's a whole story in itself. But, uh, yeah, I got the call. I got a call from him, uh, or somehow or another, got connected with him, 
he needed a drummer for a weekend, uh, and he had like 35 tunes on his set list, and I had to learn them all in like a week. Mm-hmm. And so I used Harry's thing and was reading them on the gig, and it was yeah. it straight up saved my ass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll have to look that up because I like I've kind of you know we all develop our own little system for charting. Yeah, and mine mine works fine, but I I do think it's it takes too long. Yeah, yeah. Like I need I need a better system for just like quick and dirty. You know, because I, I can't, I can't do a super abbreviated one. Like I, I, for some reason, my brain just wants to make it the way it's going to be. Right, right. The first time, and that takes a while. Yeah, you know? I definitely look up Harry's video. It is, okay. is a game changer. Cool. Um, so, you talked about like production rehearsal. Obviously, you had to learn all these songs. Yeah. But what else did you have to learn for the show? Um, some choreography. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> no, um, uh, really, you, you do it. I believe you do it. Yeah, <laughs> sure. I'll, I don't care. I'll do yeah. whatever. Uh, I played at Disneyland for four years. We we do what we got to do. You did it for that long? Yeah. I didn't know you did it for four years. Yeah, man. That was, Damn. That was my that was my day job in L.A. Basically. Whoa. Were I, were you playing Kit? Well, no, it was this, it was this stupid, like, snare splash rig on a harness. Oh, you've told me about this. Okay, yeah. Because yeah. we had to Like a second, second line type of thing. Yeah. Okay. And there was literally choreography. Like, oh, wow. Well, I mean, it, w- it was blocking. It was basically yeah, yeah. blocking. But anyway, um, so, so, St. Paul show. Um, so, yeah, as far as what I had to learn, the, um, so the tunes themselves, uh, I don't think hard is the right adjective for them, but like tricky mm-hmm. or slick. Is yep. the, maybe they're, they're specific. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of twists and turns, like especially their earlier stuff. And they, this is what they told me when we first got together. It was like, uh, they said something like our earlier stuff when we didn't really know how to write songs, <laughs> which obviously they did right. because they wrote a huge hit. But uh they were like when we didn't know how to write songs, we didn't we didn't know what we were doing. So there's like weird phrases and hits in weird places and whatever. Yeah. Um, so that stuff is is weird and and tricky, like just odd numbers of bars. Yep. Or yeah, I can't think of any specific examples, but just weird little little things. I, like I that. know exactly um, what you mean because Ruby Bell and Sulfonic songs are the same way. Like, yeah, there's there's not much in there that's like technically difficult, right? But it's just tricky. It's like there's this one little thing in the second verse that's different from the first <laughs> verse, and uh, you know, and there's an odd number of bars here, and, and yeah, uh, yeah. So I know what you mean. So all all that to say that that like the tunes themselves are not that hard. They're just tricky mm-hmm. the stuff that was difficult was it's it's a show yeah. like it's not just songs right it's a show so there's transitions between virtually every song like there's an intro and uh yeah in between this song you got to remember you count this one off or you set it up where the guitarist does this one so you have eight bars to change over or whatever so right. yeah it's like a lot of uh it's a lot of really little specific things. Uh-huh. Transitional um, stuff. Yeah, but like other than, I mean, that was the bulk of it. it was just like the little minutia yeah. that you had to sort of digest. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, to me, it almost it almost plays down like a musical. There, yeah. You know, it, it happens the same way every time. There are cues that people take from each other. Yeah, totally. And it's uh, 
You're not just standing around between songs. It's like... Yeah, it's a very... Especially from the drum seat, it's a very physically demanding show. Right. Like, it's constant. There yeah. are very few moments where I'm not playing. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, and it's like a loud show too, so you're hitting you're hitting hard. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's very it's it's nonstop. It's right. like pretty much an hour and a half of just playing constantly. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And so you mentioned uh, we were you were you were home like a month ago or something. You were kind of yeah like for like two or three days. Yeah, you were on a little break. And um, during that time, we we found ourselves at a burger joint with with our friends Ansley Stewart, oh yeah, and yeah. Tony and Aaron. And Ansley asked you, so what's what's been the coolest part of tour so yeah. far? And usually, when we get asked that question, people are asking about like, oh, well, did you see some monument? Did you do something in nature? Did you go to a museum? Did you yeah. have awesome food? You know, because all the stuff you get to do on tour. Yeah. And so she said, what's the coolest part of tour? And you thought for a second and you were like, the shows. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, dude. <laughs> Which I'm, was refreshing. Like, yeah. that's what it should be, you know? Um, yeah. So it, did that did that hold out, like, through, through Europe and everything? Did yeah, absolutely. Like, this is... There have definitely been tours. We've all done them. There have definitely been tours that, like, the show is an afterthought. Like, right. Excuse me. Once you know it, um, you're just sort of on autopilot, and the your stimulation comes from not the show. Right. You know, like, whether it's going to see stuff or the hang afterwards or whatever. Yeah. But this was, like, on show days. I actually... I think this is the first time I've been on tour, and I preferred show days to off days. Really? You know, because uh, the shows are so much fun. Like, the music is awesome. Yeah. I definitely am not taking for granted the fact that I'm playing with a band that, like, uh, that I really dig the music. Mm-hmm. And it's really fun to play. Um, the Stylistically, it's, like, up my alley. And um, and there's also two sections of the show where Paul walks off stage and he's basically like, do whatever you want. The band can just play. <laughs> so we play like a JB's tune and oh, cool. Al, the organist, and Bro and the guitarist get to stretch and it's just like, go. Yeah. Like, do your thing. And then there's an extension at the end of one of the songs where it's like me and the horn players just like, like no holds barred, just like go for it. It's it's wow. really awesome. So that's also really cool that we're doing these shows every night and they're songs and you mm-hmm. got to play the songs. Um, they're not sticklers about playing the exact same notes every night. So mm-hmm. you can, there's still room within the songs to, to stretch and, and improvise and whatever, but you still have to serve the songs, but there are sections in the show where it's different every night, like total creative freedom. Right. And which is amazing to be able to play a gig like in front of this many people and be able to stretch and Mm -hmm. improvise and, and like fall flat on your face. (laughs) Like as long as the, the energy is there and people can still shake their asses to it. Yeah. Like they're all about it. And like the crazier we would get the, I don't know if out is the right word, but like the more adventurous we were being, the more Paul and Jesse, the main songwriters and band leaders loved it. Cool. Which is awesome. Cool. So I, I assume you started out 
just learning the songs, the drum parts. Yeah, yeah. You know, as they are. Um, yeah. Did you did you have room to <coughs> reinterpret any of that, or have you pretty much stuck to what it is? Well, the the cool thing is like the very first rehearsal. What they told me was. Uh, they said something to the effect of like, play the song, serve the song, obviously, but uh-huh. don't feel like you have to play it exactly like it is on the record. Mm-hmm. Don't worry, like you don't have to worry about copying the exact pattern. Right. You know, um, right. there are some songs where I'm gonna copy the exact pattern because yeah. that's what makes sense. But you know, like every musician, you hear things a little differently than the than the other guy. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are just some. Some tunes, if I had tried to play it just like Andrew, then it wouldn't have felt right because I would have been forcing it. Right. So. Right. But at the same time, there's uh, I I find you know when when I'm in a situation like that, it, it often forces me to learn stuff that I would never have thought of. Right. Like if it was up to me to you know create a drum part for that song. Right. I I would never have come up with that, and whatever yeah, totally. whatever I would have come up with probably wouldn't have been as cool. So yeah. all of a sudden I'm I'm faced with this thing. It's like, well, you know, I have to copy this. I don't get to create it, but you know, it's more more ideas, more tricks. And yeah, yeah, and it, that was really cool too. Because yeah, there are definitely things that, like I I don't think that way. So yeah. it's making me play and think in a different way. Right, I, I can put it through my filter, but right. I still have to serve the the original part to some extent. Yeah, know? yeah. yeah. Um, and you got some uh, you got some fishing time in, right? Yeah, yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> uh, me and Al, the keyboardist, Al Gamble, who's like a freaking Jedi. Good God, <laughs> that guy's amazing. Like, incredible musician, uh, awesome dude. Uh, yeah, just all around awesome dude. Uh, he and I share a fishing obsession. So cool. Like the first day we met, somehow fishing came up. I might have been wearing my Bassmaster shirt or something, <laughs> and. Uh, uh, Paul was like, yeah, you should talk to Al. He's a big fisherman, too. And we hit it off immediately because of that. And so I was like, dude, you got to get a telescope and rod. Yeah. So, like, the little the fishing rods that break down to, like, a foot long, and you right. can put it in a, in a case and bring it with you. So we both did that. And then anytime we had an off day, if there was a body of water nearby, like in Redding, California, there was the, I think it was the Columbia River. Uh-huh. Me and Al went out there and went smallmouth fishing for, like, four hours. Man. Yeah, it was cool. awesome. It's so cool when you can bring your, like, whatever else you're into yeah. on the road. Like, Justin Chazarek brings his camera everywhere. Yeah, totally. And I, I bring my mouth everywhere and just eat things. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but, yeah, I was, I was it, it's only recently that I learned that you were super into fishing. Yeah. And, and I was just so, it was so cool to hear that you were able to do that just out on the road. Yeah, I mean, that's like. That is my release. Outside of music, that's my biggest obsession. Mm-hmm. So, like, I think that's what keeps me sane. Yeah. If I'm not playing or writing or, or or doing something with music, working essentially, then I'm I try to be outside fishing, hiking, kayaking, whatever. Yeah, yeah. That's that's cooking for me. Like, I've I've added up the hours that I spend like reading about cooking or watching yeah. cooking shows. It's mm-hmm. like you'd think I'd be studying up on drums. Yeah, and music. But yeah, yeah. Like, like you, if I'm not working, like if I'm not doing something kind of specifically work related, I'm shopping for food and looking right. at recipes and watching <laughs> YouTube videos and like you know, yeah. it's uh, yeah. I I really believe that that you got to have something else. Yeah, totally. You'll go, you'll go crazy. <laughs> yeah. Like I mean, and that doesn't mean that like I don't spend downtime working on stuff. Right. Like 
uh, just uh, of my own volition, but it does mean that there are days where I'm like, I'm burnt out. I don't feel like seeing a drum set or a keyboard right. or whatever. I just want to be outside, not around people. <laughs> just like me and the fish or me and Aaron and the water. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, here, I'm gonna put my jacket on. Yeah, sure. Do you need a Do you need a refill? Sure. Intermission. Whiskey Please. refill. <laughs> so, speaking of Aaron, your lady. Um, yeah. Before you got this gig. Yeah. Like over this over the summer. Um, we had a conversation or maybe a couple conversations yeah. and, and the situation was she was going back to grad school. Mm-hmm. She was going to stop working and you were gearing up to take like every single wedding gig and every single student yeah. that you could wrangle because yeah. the financial burden was going to be more heavily on you yeah. for the foreseeable future. Um, so I would, I would imagine that the, the St. Paul gig has helped in that regard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, as an understatement. Man. Um, but what like what was your what was your mindset and how did you approach that that need and that kind of pressure if that's the right word? Uh man, before so, before you got the gig, like before you knew that gig was coming. Yeah, yeah. Um so Thankfully, me and Aaron have a really amazing relationship, and we're, like, in each other's corners yeah. all the way. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, like, for the past, God, four or five years, she has, well, definitely for the last two, since she went to the, the job she's at now. She works part-time at an animal hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, she's not a big fan of the job, but it paid, and she gets a discount uh, when it comes to our vet bills. Right. Um so she stuck it out and I was, I was hustling and doing, um, wedding gigs and teaching, but all that allowed me to pursue creative stuff. Right. Um, writing my own stuff, uh, putting out my own music, touring and playing with Sam Birchfield and, uh, Pit the Pansy and Bone Lucy and Artemis and, and whoever else. Um, uh, and, she did that for me for so long that when she decided she wanted to go back to grad school, it was a no brainer. It was yeah. like, well, now she's about to dive in head first and pursue what she wants to do. She's getting a, uh, her graduate degree in mental health counseling. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, so I was like, yeah, it's time to cowboy up. Like, uh, I was like, this is going to be a two year program. And so I'm just going to suck it up and say, yes. Like you said, Say yes to every lesson, every wedding, every everything that came along. Yeah. Um, and I was, I mean, I was all in. I was like, this is what I got to do. Right. So this is what I'll do. And then, uh, so I was doing that for a few months. Um, and, I mean, thankfully, you know, you play in the Emerald Empire band. Yeah. Uh, the, the wedding band here. Um, and thankfully, you're on the gig with a bunch of friends. And usually the gigs are relatively low pressure depending yeah. on the gig yeah um and like my students are all great and flexible and uh uh so it was it was okay like it wasn't my first choice of stuff to do but it was it was fine it's tolerable yeah and i was <laughs> i was working a lot yeah and uh and i, I was happy because uh-huh. i was playing i was teaching and i was supporting aaron yeah um so when this came along it was just like <sighs> now I can breathe. <laughs> right. Like, uh, yeah, because 
uh, now, uh, you know, I'm making decent money playing with a band that plays music that I really, really like. Yeah. Um, and, and at the same time, it's so it's, it's not just income. It's also uh, creative fulfillment. Yeah. Thankfully. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was, a, it was a breath of fresh air, but I, I still, you know, I, I own my teaching company and I still teach students when I'm home. Right. Um, so it all worked out, but, but yeah, up until I got the call for the gig, it was just like, this is what I'm doing. I'm all in. I'm, right. I'm going to do it. Right. So for the, for the couple months that you were doing that before the gig came along, um, did you, did you feel good about like, were you, were you going to make it? Were you going <laughs> to, like, yeah. was it sustainable? Well, I guess we never know. This, <laughs> we don't, we don't have this to line know. Of work, right. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, I was, I, we would have been fine. Mm-hmm. And if tomorrow this gig ends and, uh, I go back to doing that, I'll be fine. Right. Um, it would not be my first choice of things to do. Yeah. Um, uh, if I had my pick of the litter, because mm-hmm. uh, as much as I love playing wedding gigs with my friends, I didn't get into this business to play weddings. Right. You know? right. Um, uh, but yeah, I would be I would be fine because ultimately I have my sticks in my hands and I'm making a living and I'm spending time with friends and uh, yeah 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 it's great. Well, I I think some some musicians are kind of reluctant to fill their schedule that way with with mm. stuff that might not be their first choice because. They want to, you know, financial emergency notwithstanding. Yeah. They, they want to keep their options open. They want to keep their schedule open so that if they get the big call, yeah, yeah, they can just say yes immediately. But and, and I, I understand that impulse. But um, you know, I, I I just heard your story and I've he- heard a bunch of other stories of you know people who get the call and they have to drop everything. Yeah. Like I, I guess what I'm saying is is it's good to have a lot of stuff to have to drop. Right, indeed. When you get the call, mm-hmm. instead of just like not filling the schedule and kind of just waiting around for the call. Totally. So, you know, subbing out all those wedding gigs and, and rescheduling all those lessons and all that stuff is a huge pain in the ass. But right. it's like if if that call hadn't come, all that stuff is in place. Indeed, yeah. Right? Yeah. And uh, it's interesting uh, that you bring that up, the, the idea of filling your schedule up with like... Uh, work, yeah. so to speak, rather yeah. than keeping it open for creative stuff. Because up until Aaron started grad school, I I was sort of doing that. I was taking I was taking wedding gigs. Uh, I was teaching, but I was I wasn't going super like I wasn't going as hard as I could on it because right. I was playing with Sam Birchfield a lot, and I still play with Sam. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but like we would do you know two week tours between two and four times a year. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd, yeah, something like that. Um, so I would prioritize that stuff, and I would sub out wedding gigs to go do that stuff, even though it paid a fraction of what the wedding gigs would pay, right. because I was in a financial place where I was able to do that, and like I had to be able to uh, scratch that creative itch. Yeah. And then once the um, once Aaron went to grad school, I uh, I was like, okay, it's time to buckle down. And so my outlet was going to be doing as many of the as many tours like that as I could within reason. I might have to say no to some right for financial reasons. Yeah, but uh, I, I would do as many as I could. And then I actually right before I started um, with St. Paul, I 
was uh, I had a trajectory to finish up my first solo EP, which I still want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just like pushed back a little bit now. Right. But like I was gonna find ways to scratch that creative itch. It was just like I had to put more effort into doing work, work in order to pay the bills. Right. That was a, <laughs> that was a loud ass refrigerator function. Excuse me. <laughs> Um, so, um, aside from like, it, okay. So if the St. Paul call hadn't come, you, you said, you know, teaching and all the gigs were in place and you would have been fine financially. Yeah. How do you, how would you feel about, uh, the decreased kind of creative activity over a long period of time? And this is all, I mean, I mean, were, like, were you geared up for that too? Yeah. Like yeah. You were, um, you were mentally prepared, like. I'm going to have to say no to cool shit so that I can make money. <laughs> yeah. And I, I hate doing that. Yeah, uh, we all do. But, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. When you got to work, you got to work. But, uh, um, yeah, I wouldn't have been thrilled about it, but I would have done it, and I would have found ways to uh, to fill that gap. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I think like most people, most creative types, I don't like sitting still for mm-hmm. very long. So, like, if I am stagnant and I'm just playing wedding gigs... Uh, or, or whatever, you know, just paying the bills essentially, yeah. um, then I'm going to find some way to scratch that creative itch, right. uh, whether it's like booking one of my own gigs or writing my own stuff, uh, recording stuff, making videos, playing uh, playing gigs around town with bands that don't pay much but yeah. are really fun to play with yeah. or, or whatever. And I think part of that comes with the, the <clears throat> recognition that a career like this kind of has seasons. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. And and chapters. And I mean we, we were talking about the Disney thing. Like yeah. I did that for four years, any anywhere from two to four days a week for four years. Um and it got like don't get me wrong, it got old. <laughs> it got really old. Yeah. But you know the the money was steady and I was talking with Christina the other day about how like I I think I think I have a less urgent creative itch than somebody like you, for instance. Okay. Like I, I lasted four years in that Disney gig. Right. And I, I only left it cause we moved here. I see. Yeah. Yeah. And if I was telling Christina the other day, if we hadn't moved here, like I was reaching the point at that Disney gig where I was going to have to yeah. not quit the gig, but like do some legwork to get some other shit going. Sure. Cause I, I had some other stuff going, but like I was going a little bit nuts on Disney. Yeah. Um, so, but you know, I, I, I recognize now that that was, that was a chapter of my career. It was Disney heavy. If I had had, if I had stayed in LA, um, you know, I presumably, hopefully would have found an outlet to do some other cool stuff yeah. and may, you know, eventually move on from Disney. I certainly didn't want to play there my whole fucking life. Right. Yeah. Which some people do. Um, yeah. but, um, but yeah, just that that uh, kind of awareness that like this is a season, this is a chapter. It's mm-hmm. it's dominated by this need or this gig or this situation, right? Um, and it's not it's not permanent. Nothing, indeed, just, nothing is permanent in this <laughs> fucking yeah, business. Um, <laughs> uh, actually, Jaron, uh, or I guess is uh, on social media. His name is Amari. Um, mm-hmm the sax player in St. Paul, uh, he and I were talking for a while cause he's, he's relatively new to the band too. Mm-hmm. Um, been with him for about a year 
and he said, uh, we were talking about something one day, and he said one of his teachers told him, one of his first days at uh, in college, his teachers told him every gig has an end. So, mm-hmm. like, it doesn't matter what the gig is, you should never assume that that gig is going to last forever. Yeah. And, and so, like, um, keeping that in mind, uh, I have a... I feel like I have a really healthy outlook on this St. Paul gig mm-hmm. um, because I've been in this situation before. When I first moved to Atlanta, I I had a gig with this guy named Nico Moon who was on the Southern Ground label, mm-hmm. um, Zach Brown's indie label. Yeah. And uh, that's that's what we moved over here for. I had a gig and Aaron had an internship at the zoo. Um, and uh, I was sort of, I mean, I was young and naive and I sort of thought like this is my big break like this is it this is, I'm a star now I don't have to worry about anything I'm I'm on a gig I was getting paid salary it was, it was like oh this is it yeah and then it ended yeah it was literally like we didn't work for a couple months and I was still getting paid somehow I don't know how that happened and then the band leader called me out of nowhere uh, and was just like hey I can't pay you anymore I was like oh shit and I was, I thought I was just sitting pretty. Like, mm-hmm. this gig's going to last forever. Um, I'm fine. I don't have to hustle anymore. I don't have to, I don't have to do the stuff working drummers do. Right. And it bit me in the ass hard. Yeah. Because we moved to Atlanta, and I spent very little time going out on the scene and meeting anyone. Because yep. um, in my mind, I justified it by saying, like, well, if this band says jump, I got to jump. So why would I put any effort into building other connections when all I can do is this, which is stupid. If you're listening, that's stupid. Um, uh, yeah, so uh, I I just sort of sat around and uh, was getting free money, basically. Right. And when that ended, I was like, oh, shit. Uh, what am I going to do? And I started hustling really hard, going out almost every night, uh, applied to every teaching company I could, yeah. um, and then started uh, like budgeting super hard. I was on unemployment for like six months, mm-hmm. um, and then like basically built built some work up around here right. over time. Right. Um, so now that I'm in a, a situation again where I have a a good gig, um, the difference is that I like. I hope Nico Moon doesn't listen to this podcast, but I like the music <laughs> of this gig. Yeah. Um, uh, so it's like creatively fulfilling and it's a good, a good job. Um, and, uh, regardless of that, uh, I'm not going to get complacent. Right. I am going to keep on working, uh, working on my stuff. I'm going to stay on the scene around here, not only because like I want to stay relevant and want to know, want people to know that that I still want to work, but also because I love the Atlanta scene and like, I would be bored out of my mind if I was just sitting here. Right. Um, when uh, when I went out on the road, um, so that when and if this gig does end, then I will have something to come back to. Right. You know? Right. Well, yeah. Complacency is 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 the word, mm-hmm. um, and and I fell victim to that um, in a couple of ways, especially during my time in, in L.A. Um, it, it happened in the short term. Like when I first, I moved to LA in October of 2010 and I moved there with a gig. 
Yeah. Uh, through a fortuitous connection, I had landed a gig playing a musical at the Kirk Douglas Theater for like six weeks. Nice. So, so like I was basically cool from the time I moved there until Christmas. Uh-huh. And you know, I was I was making good money and, and all that. And then and I, I like you, I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't right. going out. I wasn't meeting anybody. Um, I, ju- I was just sitting there playing at this theater, yeah, collecting money, yeah, yeah. And then Christmas came around, and we got back from Christmas vacation, and I had nothing. Like right. the money ran out in no time because LA just eats twenties. Um, and, uh, and yeah, like that led to a year and a half of like hard scrabble, you know, like working on a food truck, you know, just like scraping and stressing. And, and I, I wonder if, you know, if I had, in addition to playing that musical when I first got there, um, if I had just done more Mm legwork from day one instead of playing this musical in October and then starting legwork in like January. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, and then it happened to me on a, on a larger scale with the whole Disney gig because like that, that Disney gig made me complacent. Like I, you know, like you said, I had, I had the sticks in my hands. I was playing, I was making money. I was not creatively fulfilled. Sure. That didn't seem as important to me. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just, I didn't, I didn't, um, feel I, I didn't have like the kind of self-instilled urgency that you need to have if if your main thing goes away right right and like most of the time I was in LA I, I had other stuff going on I was part of some cool projects and some cool gigs but if that Disney thing went away I was fucked yeah I yeah been so so fucked um and so now I'm I'm looking around at the same kind of situation. Like I have like the Emerald thing is pretty steady, mm-hmm. the Ruby Vell thing is pretty steady, teaching thing is pretty steady. Um, but it it dawned on me like a couple months ago, like it's it's time to do some more legwork. Yeah, yeah, and just build out some more infrastructure and get some more things going. Not that I'm unhappy with anything that's sure. currently happening, but if it happens to go away or if another opportunity presents itself, like I want to have the, um, uh, the apparatus in place, you know, in terms of contacts, in terms of just being seen and, and having friends (laughs) on on the scene. What can you tell us about Birmingham? Uh, Ooh, that's a broad question. Uh, Birmingham's great. You that's, grew up there, right? Yeah, born and raised. Yeah, yeah. Um, I lived in Birmingham my entire life, except until I moved to Atlanta, except for one year where I, where I was in New York. Um, you spent a year in New York? I did spend a year in New York. How old were you? I was 22. That was 2011, I think. What'd that do uh, to you? Oh, God. <laughs> I did a lot of things. Um... um no, New York was amazing, man. Like it, um, it was all at once one of the most amazing and terrifying periods of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, it chewed me up and spit me out. Um, and it, yeah, when I when I moved up there, I'll get back to the Birmingham question. Yeah, yeah. I swear. But uh, I derailed you. But uh, yeah, when I moved up there, I sort of went up there with the idea of like I'm just going to learn. Um, I'm not really trying to establish a career. Uh, I'm just going to go see what it's all about. But in the back of my mind, there was a little voice in the back of my head that was like, 
when I get up there, somebody's going to hear me and be like, oh, shit, this kid's on to something. <laughs> um, this kid's got a vibe. This kid's got a sound. And then I got up there, and within one night of going out, I was like, oh, God, I was so wrong. Right. Like, one night out of Smalls, and I was just like, um, fuck. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, for a year, like, I, I, had a, I had a couple steady gigs, like, at restaurants, playing standards, jam sessions, whatever. Yeah. Um, but I worked at Starbucks. I was a cater waiter. Um, and I was – it was amazing because, like, the best musicians of the wor- in the world are, like, a 10-minute walk from your doorstep. Yeah, yeah. Um, but at the same time, like, my rent was $900, and I was broke as a joke. Right. And that was eight years ago, seven years ago. Yeah. I mean, God knows what it is now. That rent is probably 2000 now. Easily. <laughs> yeah. And that's probably not an exaggeration. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, I, uh, I mean, I, I definitely got eaten alive. And, uh, but it was great. It was a huge learning experience. And I moved up there thinking, I want to be a jazz cat. I right. want to play straight ahead. Right. I want to I be Bill Stewart, basically. Right. Because, um, like, in college, I was a jazz snob. I just, that's what I wanted to do. Same. Oh, yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I went, um, I went up there thinking that. And after a while, I didn't really realize it until I moved back to Birmingham. But after a while, I slowly started to realize that I was sort of tricking myself into thinking that I wanted to be a jazz musician in the strictest sense of the word. You know what I mean? Same, yeah. Because I think in order to be super specialized like that, you have to be a certain type of person. Yes. Like, you have to have like grown up in that and that's like like cats in New York who do that, that's all they do. That's all they listen to. That's all they think about. Yeah. and that's just not me. Right. I love that music, and I still play that music, and I love studying it, and uh, and so on. But like, yeah, I moved home, and in re- like a couple months after I got home and was playing, I was like, I'm really glad I didn't stay up there and try to be a jazz cat. I'd be yeah. broke and I'd be unhappy, and I'd try to be forced some forcing something <laughs> right. that's just not me. I'm not right. being true to myself. It's almost a monastic dedication that you have to have mm-hmm. to be a jazz player. I feel like. yeah, it's, it's similar to like playing tablas. Totally. Like, if you're, if you, you can't just fuck with tablas. Right. You can't just, like, you know, learn a couple things. I mean, I'm sure some people do, but I, I feel like if you're gonna, if you're gonna play tablas, you have to dedicate your life totally. yeah, yeah. <laughs> to learning that music and that instrument. Um, and I kind of, the more I think about it, the, the more I feel that way about jazz. Like, it might not be that extreme, but like, like you said, you, you have to just be eating, breathing, shitting that. 24 seven yeah. to be at, at the highest level, like to hack it in New York mm-hmm. and to turn any heads in yeah. New York. Like, and especially if you're talking, like if you're talking about what I'm talking about, like being the straightest of the straight ahead, you know what I right. mean? Like bebopping. Yeah. Um, like Bill Stewart, basically right. like that is what he does yeah. and he does the shit out of it and he's amazing. Yeah. Um, but like, yeah, that, that was not me. Right. That, and, uh, I I don't how do I say it I could tell after a while that I wasn't being true to myself and that didn't feel good yeah um, and there was I was putting all this like unspoken pressure on myself to be a one of the cats yep you know yep um, 
when really after I got back home and was thinking about it, I was like, that didn't make me happy. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not Jeff Watts. I'm not Bill Stewart. Um, uh, I, I love Miles Davis and I love Sonny Rollins, mm-hmm. but I also love Metallica. <laughs> you know? Right. Right. Um, so I love that music and I love incorporating it into what I do and being influenced by it. And I still love playing it sometimes. Yeah. But I'm not going to do that full time. Right. Yeah. Me neither. And, but it, it, it's so, um, I, I think it's so central to, to just sensitivity as a musician. And, totally. Uh, you know, you, you and I don't play jazz for a living, but right. the amount of jazz that we've played over the years has, <laughs> has given us, um, I call it like your musical antenna, like yeah. it strengthens your musical antenna, totally. your, your ears, your awareness, your um, perception. Um, it, it really sharpens all that shit. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, to piggyback off of that, I'm still going to get back to the Birmingham thing. We're going to get, there. I'm still thinking about it, <laughs> but uh, I was listening to, uh, Oh, it was the Bill Stewart, the, the interview you did with Bill Stewart. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you said something similar to that. And I feel like I say it every other interview, but it's <laughs> totally true, right? Yeah. It does. It does like broaden your musical horizons. Jazz playing straight ahead stuff gives you ears that you maybe can't have if you don't do it. Yeah. Um, in in a certain way, yeah, that's, yeah. that's probably not completely true, but, um, I, but no, I think that's true. Like being in a being in a room improvising with a few other people. Um, yeah. There's you know, aside from the jam band thing. Uh, there's really no other way to do that. Right. You know, and the jam band thing is a different bag. It's yeah. like, uh, I, I have thoughts on that too. <laughs> Improvising. The, anyways, yeah, yeah. Put, put a pin in that as well. But, uh, yeah. Um, so jazz, I, I do think jazz opens your ears in a way that a lot of other musics maybe can't. Yeah. But, I also had an experience where jazz sort of bit me in the ass a little bit, and it was when I was with Nico Moon. Uh-huh. Uh, I was I hadn't quite moved over here yet. That should I, be your solo EP. What's that? Jazz bit me in the ass. <laughs> I've always wanted to. I've probably told you this, but I've always wanted to make an album of jazz ballads called "Slow Down." I'm about to jazz. <laughs> um, but you know, like, in, so in college, I was a. <laughs> <laughs> in, in college, Whoa. I was a jazz snob, right? I was listening to only things under the jazz umbrella. Right. Um, and then I got this Nico Moon gig through Chris Fryer. Um, and uh, I I thought I was the shit. Like, I thought, like, I got this... I got this jazz background. I can play. I'm right. Gonna, I'm gonna, I play jazz. Yeah. I can do this. Yeah, I'm about to jazz all over you. <laughs> and, uh, then so we're playing and the gigs are going fine. Um, but then we go and we cut this record that sadly never saw the light of day. Mm-hmm. Um, it got shelved. But we cut this record in Nashville with this producer named Jamie Kinney, um, who's a really great producer. He did uh, one of uh, Mark Broussard's early records um, but he really good producer he really whooped my ass uh-huh. and uh, the reason I bring this up is because we're recording at Southern Ground Studios in Nashville and uh, in between all the takes I'm, I'm playing this like caveman rock shit yeah. like hitting really really hard really beefy backbeat stuff um, 
And in between all the takes, every time the red light goes off, I'm sitting in there just practicing all my jazz chops, right? Mm-hmm. Like just just trying to shred and keep my keep my licks hot, baby. <laughs> and uh, Jamie comes in over the talkback mic and is he's sort of joking, or at least I think he is. He goes, Kevin, I swear to God, if I hear you practicing your jazz chops in there one more time, I'm going to come rip the sticks out of your fucking hands. <laughs> and I just laughed it off. I was like, whatever. Um, so I keep doing it. And then later that day, Jamie pulls me aside uh, when no one else was around. And he's like, hey, Kevin, I was being serious in there. Like, you need to stop. You need to stop messing around with the jazz. He said, your jazz chops sound fine. Your two and four need some serious work. <laughs> and that was the first point. Where like I had heard people say it, but that was the first point where like I realized like playing two and four and making heads bob and making that making it feel really really good yeah is an art that's just as deep as any other art form right totally. just as deep as swinging or learning the bebop language or whatever yep, yep. Um, and. Yeah, I felt about this big. Right. And was like, oh, my God, I don't know what I'm doing. And I immediately went in there and started, between every take, playing along with, like, every (laughs) dumb uh, rock drum track you can think of. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I started, like, listening back to myself. That spurred this whole period where I was, like, micro-analyzing myself. I was, like, in my practice room, and I would put on – there was a track I was using a lot at the time – Black Cow by Steely Dan. Yeah. I'm not a huge Steely Dan fan, but it's Steve Gadd, right? Right. And that groove is is amazing. Like, it's so authoritative and it feels so good, but it's laid back at mm-hmm. the same time. And I would play the Black Cow groove as it is and record it and listen back and see if I can make it feel like him. Yeah. And then once I felt okay about that, I would start to try to improvise around a little around it a little bit <clears throat> and see if I could still make it feel like sit in that pocket. Right. And I was just like, Oh my God, I have so much work to do. Yeah. Cause like, it's really easy to shred. Like sure. Anybody can, can learn to play fast, but right. to play fast and like play some showy shit or whatever and make it feel good. Yeah. Let alone just like play two and four and make people, uh, like stop what they're doing and pay attention just by playing two and four. That's like a whole other thing. Yeah, that's yeah. why cats like Steve Gadd and Ash Sohn and and yep. Josh Freese and, and guys like that are the most recorded dudes. And Bernard Purdy, Vinny Colaiuta, yep. like yep. like everybody thinks of chops when they think of Vinny, but Vinny gets all the work because Vinny can play a groove that will peel the fucking paint off the walls. <laughs> right, right. And you you made such a good point about um, making your improvisation feel as good as your yeah. groove because I like I don't know if you experienced this but like you know with with such a heavy jazz background I've been I've been focusing more on on groove yeah. in like the last 5 years um but one of the things I've kind of busted myself on is that my fills and my improvising don't like it it's out of character like if I'll be grooving along um, the backbeat will feel good. The groove will feel good. Mm-hmm. And then when it comes time to fill or open up a little bit or, or improvise a little bit, yeah, yeah. like my, my hands and my brain have, you know, were going back into jazz work yeah, yeah. and it was just out of character from what I was playing. And like all of those drummers, you mentioned Gad, Freese, 
Um, Purdy, Carlock is another one. Yeah. Like, they're, you know, the groove and the improv are, are of the same character. Totally. You know? And it's it's just cohesive. It's homogenous. Yeah. Um, so, that yeah, that's another... It's just another thing that makes those guys great. I've, I've, I've warmed up to Gad... <laughs> so much in the last five years because yeah. like in my in my younger years I didn't hate him I never disliked him but sure. I, was, I was like what's I don't know it just doesn't do much for me but like the more mm-hmm. I'm listening to him you know just the, the spirit and the cohesiveness and the groove yeah. and the organic you know amazingness with which he plays is what makes him yeah, the feel, man. That live uh, stuff live at Montreux. Do you know that record? Yes. That is amazing. Yes. Oh my yeah. god! But uh, one one more quick note on yeah. that. Uh, when I moved when I moved to Atlanta after the after the gig fell apart, I was looking for somebody to study with, and I, I did a handful of lessons with Chris Burroughs. Do you know Chris? Yeah. And uh, one of the cool things that Chris would talk about was that groove is groove it doesn't matter what it is mm-hmm. and i used to think like uh jazz is jazz funk is funk rock is rock right mm-hmm. but then chris would chris would talk about how he would put on a james brown record and try to swing on top of it huh. or he would put on a uh, miles davis record and try to play james brown groove on top of it wow and make it feel good yeah yeah and his point was like groove is groove it doesn't matter what style you're playing like right. uh Genre is just a label. Like, if you can make it feel good, you can make it feel good. That's why, like, that's why Steve Gadd works with, like, uh, Chick Corea, but he also played with Stuff. Right. And, and James Taylor. And James like, yeah. Taylor. Yeah, like, he gets working with everyone because it doesn't matter what style he's playing. It's all about the feel yep. and the group, everything he played. This episode is brought to you by DrumSellers.com, the niche marketplace where drummers, drum retailers, and drum manufacturers buy and sell their gear. List your drums for sale for free, and the only fee is 4% if it sells. Simple. Check out all the new used vintage and custom drum eye candy at DrumSellers.com. Okay. Birmingham. Birmingham. <laughs> Birmingham. Birmingham is great. Birmingham is home. Yeah. Um, I love going to Birmingham. A lot of my best friends live there. Pretty much my entire family, except for one uncle that's here in Atlanta, pretty much my entire family lives in Birmingham, so I love going home. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as a career, like making a career as a working musician, career being the, the uh, pivotal word, um, I would not want to live there again, uh-huh. at least not right now. Maybe when I'm older and I want to settle down somewhere or something, right. who knows, maybe I'll, I want a house in Birmingham. But like, um, just like any small town, even though Birmingham is the biggest city in Alabama, it's still a small town. It's not saying much. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so there's a really low ceiling. Like the gig to have there is a, uh, Blackjack and Symphony, which is like a, a tribute band. Yeah, I just got hit um, to them. Yeah, yeah, and they're they're great. They do what they do, and they sell out theaters all over the place doing it. Right. Um, but it's a tribute band. Yeah. You know, and some of my friends make a great living doing that, and they really love it. And more power to them if you do that and you love it. I'm not hating on that, but like, that's not what I want to do. Right. That's not my mo. So I knew I wanted to get out of Birmingham from from the time I started college, basically. Um, just because I knew... I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to do something more than play in 
cover bands and play bars around town. Right. Which is what I would still be doing is if I was in Birmingham. Yeah. And again, not hating on that. Yeah. Because if that's what you want to do, it makes you happy. More power to you. But like, yeah, right. um, what what school did you go to there? University of Alabama at Birmingham. Okay. Um, which, oh man, we could do a whole podcast on that place. Um, <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I have a lot of feelings and thoughts. I, I don't know if that came up. I doubt that came up with Harry, but I know he's got some. It's thoughts well, on it. the the concept of collegiate music in general is a frequent theme on the show, mm-hmm. and there are you know there are virtues and, and flaws about sure. it. Um, but anyway, we we digress. But uh, all that to say, as far as Birmingham goes. Um, if you're trying to start a career there, uh, I wouldn't recommend. If you're starting trying to start a music career, I wouldn't recommend Birmingham. Mm-hmm. But there's, or maybe was, I should say, a really great creative scene in Birmingham. It seems like it, and it seems like there's like everybody's game for live music there. It seems. It seems. <laughs> the hard thing about Birmingham is that if you're playing on a weeknight, nobody's going to come to your show. Right. Like it's just. It, it, it's a small mount, small town mentality. Everybody mm-hmm. wants to stay in on the weeknight and mm-hmm. snuggle up and watch their Netflix, and right. that's that's great. But like, it's not like uh, Atlanta or New York or Nashville or in LA or, or whatever, um, where like there are other musicians that are going to come out and, and watch you. Mm-hmm. Um, there might be a few, but my my point being that um, there was a great a great creative scene there, and those players are still there. Mm-hmm. But the very small amount of clubs that were there that fostered that. There was one in particular named Marty's, um, which was, that was my real school. Marty's, uh, Marty's bar in five points in Birmingham, Alabama was my church. That place was amazing. And Marty Eagle passed away. He was the owner. He passed away five, maybe longer than that, five, six years ago now. Um, Four or five years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was like the godfather of the creative scene. He would allow me and all the other guys in that scene, including Chad Fisher, trombonist for St. Paul, yeah. to go in there and just try stuff. We would, me and uh, one of my good friends, Matt Devine, amazing keyboardist in Birmingham, mm-hmm. um, we had this band for a while called The Ark. That was, we had a handful of tunes that were all like very electronic drum and bass influenced stuff. But Marty believed in us so much and like supported the our creative efforts so much that he would let us go into his bar in the middle of five points in Birmingham, which is like used to be like the club district. Right. And play this like mostly improvised electronic influenced duo music <laughs> and just like get weird. Yeah. And we would pack the place out. Wow. Um, because people knew if you show up at Marty's, you're going to see some cool shit. Right. And Marty's Marty was like, uh, you, you know, he supported us. He, he let us do that. So, yeah. um, yeah, the, there are great players in Birmingham. There was a good scene in Birmingham and there, there are still people doing cool things, but there's not like a hub for it. Like there was, yeah. um, yeah. But music aside, Birmingham's cool. There's really great food. The people yeah. are really nice. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's a cool place. I, I want to spend more time there because I've, I've only spent a little bit of time there. But I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by towns that have like railroads or rivers right. running through them or that we are su- surrounded by mountains. And Birmingham has like all three. That's true. And it just, it just seems like this cool, old, haunted city 
uh, like a Tom Waits song come to life. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, that's a great way to put it. It's there's there's a lot of vibe there. Like, unfortunately, a lot of it is like you know the a really ugly shadow that hangs over the city. There's a lot of right. really ugly history. Yeah, um, but that's part of it. Like that's you can part of the vibe, you can go there and just kind of feel that and reckon with it. And I, I really want to go to that museum. They just opened. Oh yeah, the one that's down in Montgomery. Oh my god, the, the lynching right. memorial. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, I'm down to go to that too. Yeah, yeah. But uh, since moving to Atlanta, since moving to the South, like we've we've just been kind of like fascinated and intrigued by that kind of thing you're talking about, like this bad history. Yeah. That's that's in the water and in the soil. Yeah. But there's there's some there's something intriguing about it. It's not like it's not like bad history that you're like, oh, I want to shut that out. I don't sure. want to engage with it. I want to forget about it. It's like. I want to learn about it. I want to feel that yeah. th- that vibe and just kind of sit with it for a minute and and you know feel what happened here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Know? Well, if you ever go over there, I got plenty of places for you to check out and people <laughs> to, people to hang out with. And, yeah, uh, yeah. It's I'm I'm not knocking Birmingham. It is, yeah, it is a great town. There are some amazing musicians. Um, and speaking of which, Chris Chris Fryer was like a, a mentor, kind of a big brother to you, right? Yeah. Um, Chris, speaking of Marty's, uh, the way I met Chris was uh, um, I was in school at UAB. I'm trying to remember this. It's been so long. Um, I was in school at UAB, and I knew what I thought were all the, the heavy drummers in town. And then a couple guys were like saying uh, – have you heard Chris Fryer? You got to go hear Chris. And I was like, oh, I guess I should go hear Chris. So uh, he played with a couple bands around town, and they would play at Marty's on Sunday nights, which was the jazz night at Marty's. And I would go there, and the first time I heard him, I think, was with the, this band called the Smokin' Newports, which Colonel <laughs> Colonel Bruce named that band. Oh, God, of course he did. Yeah. Um, Smokin' Newports. Yep. God. He's going to have hits galore. Um, <laughs> but they were like this like sort of jazz fusion band, and I remember going to hear him and my jaw was on the floor. I was just like, oh, who is this guy? Yeah. And I went up to him. I do remember this part. I went up to him, and uh, when the first thing I said to him was like, hey, man, my name's Kevin. It's so nice to meet you. When can I get a lesson with you? And uh, he didn't really do lessons. Mm-hmm. So it was more like I just was like a little puppy dog and followed him around everywhere right. and like asked him a zillion questions, and we talked about music a lot. Um and we we would sit down behind the drums every now and then and just play. Mm-hmm. Um, and he would show me some stuff, uh, but it was never like a formal lesson, right? Um, and I like, like sorry to interrupt you. That's so interesting. Like I've I've heard multiple drummers and musicians talk about some kind of relationship they had with a mentor like that. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't it wasn't lessons. It was just hanging out, right? Like yeah. There's a. a a couple of guys that I wrote bios for come to mind. This the drummer in Germany named Benedict Hess mm-hmm. talked about how he visited New Orleans, like briefly, took a couple lessons in person with Johnny Badakovich. Oh, nice! But but after that, he would he would come back and visit New Orleans, and him and Johnny would have Skype hangs. Right. And he was like, we hardly ever played. Right. We just talked. Yeah. Um, and then there's a bassist in L.A. named Mike Garola who had the same kind of relationship with Jeff Hamilton. Oh, cool, yeah. Like, he, you know, he would just go run errands with Jeff. Right. He'd need to go to the drugstore and go to his dentist appointment. Like, yeah. he'd just drive around with Jeff Hamilton <laughs> and shoot the shit. Um, huh. And that that's kind of the most meaningful relationship for a lot of musicians. I think so. Like, I mean, 
this is going to sound like really new agey and, and hippy dippy. But like, <laughs> I am of the opinion that music is life and life is music. Like, yeah. uh, life manifests itself in music and vice versa. Yeah. Um, some of my biggest influences are not musicians. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, if you're around someone who you really admire, uh, you sort of get to know the inner workings of their brain and like how and why their art manifests itself like that. One of the best examples of that I can think of is I rode with Chris, uh, over here to Atlanta one time he was doing this, this gig at a barbecue restaurant. I'm blanking on the name of it. Maddie's maybe Fat Matt's not, not, Oh no, it was called, it was called Maddie's Maddie's is shut down. Now. Oh, okay. Um, but as a barbecue joint, he played this blues jam there every week. And that's ultimately long story, but that's ultimately how, how he ended up getting the Zach Brown gig. Mm-hmm. Um, but he would, he would drive over as he puts it, he would drive over once a week, every Wednesday for $50 and a barbecue sandwich. Um, because he knew he was in Birmingham and there were no, it was, you know, there's a low ceiling there and he wanted to make contacts. Uh, he knew like Colonel Bruce, he was, he played with Colonel Bruce a little bit. So he knew there was this, they're like the Almond brothers jam band scene. There was a right. lot of that going on. Right. Um, or a lot of, a lot of people that were in that scene were here. So he knew this is where he wanted to come to meet people. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I rode over here with him here being Atlanta, uh, to his gig and on one of the breaks, we sat down and ate barbecue and we both got a barbecue sandwich and I remember eating my sandwich and, uh, I sho- shove it in my mouth and I have sauce all over my face and all over my hands. I'm just a mess. And I look over at Chris. Chris is a, uh, very clean player. Like yes. think, think Vinny call you to yeah. that type of player. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Amazing, amazing musician, uh, and just the authority. Like, yeah, it's he pretty plays nuts. with such authority behind the drums. It's like yeah, seriously. But anyway, yeah. But uh, I looked over at him and his barbecue sandwich. He's using a fork and a knife, and he's cutting it, <laughs> and there is not a drop of sauce anywhere, <laughs> and no sauce on his mouth. And I've been, I look back at myself, and I look like Animal from the Muppets. <laughs> and uh, I was just like, oh. Okay, this makes sense now. This is who Chris is. Uh-huh. Like Chris is clean and neat and tidy and very uh, uh, thoughtful about everything he does. He's very thoughtful about every note he plays. Yeah, um, yeah. I thought that was really interesting. That was sort of like a light bulb moment. Right, right. Yeah, and it's. I mean, it speaks to just how you how you present yourself, you know, or how you present. Whether it's conscious or not, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, maybe, totally. maybe, maybe, maybe Chris, like if he was at home alone, maybe he would still eat that barbecue sandwich with a fork and knife. Yeah. Or maybe he was, it was a conscious decision to yeah. not get sauce all over his life. Sure. Uh, in, in, <laughs> in public. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, that's, that's something I'm hyper aware of and maybe too aware of is just yeah. like how I present myself and how I'm perceived. Mm. Um, but, um, but yeah, it, I mean, it, it, it reminded me of like something I heard recently. I don't remember who I was talking to, but like now, now part of the audition process is people look at your Instagram. Oh yeah. And yeah, they don't, yeah. they don't just look at your Instagram to see what gigs you're doing or to see videos of your playing. They're looking at it to see what do you post? Totally. Yeah. Like what kind of hang are you going to be? That is a huge part of it. Yeah. It's a little scary how much social media plays into it. Now. Yeah. Like yeah. I, I've definitely gotten gigs based on uh, my web presence, uh-huh. 
but I also wonder how many gigs I haven't gotten right. from my web presence. <laughs> you know? Right. Um, right. Yeah, it's it's a little crazy. Um, and I've I've oscillated between like, do I want my Instagram to be like, you know, the a, an extension of my professional life, mm-hmm. or do I just want to be a person? Right on Instagram. Yeah, and I think I've gravitated towards the latter. Like I, you know, I post a fair amount of music stuff on there, but there's also cooking stuff and goofy pictures of Christina. And, right. You know, whatever. Yeah. So I try to like just be a normal person. Sure. On there, because um, I, I, I got no use for somebody whose Instagram is just full of the same kinds of videos. Right. You know. Um, that's just me. Anyway. Yeah, I, I'm with you on the on the how you present yourself. Yeah, uh, I. Yeah. Should I open so, up this? But when like when you when you saw when you saw Chris like eating the sandwich yeah. with, the, with the fork and knife, like did you what did that what did that do to you going <laughs> forward? Like, I just remember thinking like God, I'm such a slob, <laughs> and uh, uh, meaning like. I like God. I'm a gross eater, but also like God. I need to work on my playing. Like, you know what I mean. I like, just need to be more adult in every way. Yeah, and I was really young when this happened. Yeah, uh, I was like 19, 18, 19, something like that. Yeah. Um, and uh, I remember sitting in at that gig, and just after hearing Chris play, I was like, "What am I doing?" <laughs> And asked Chris some questions, and he gave me some really great feedback. Um, and, but yeah, that all manifested itself. The the difference in eating manifested itself in the playing. Right, like it was very obvious. Right, you know, I need less sauce on my face while I play. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> God, what a great analogy. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, that's totally true. That's great. Before, like six months ago or something, you you put out a couple videos of like your original music. Yeah. Um, and you had our buddy Unkalisi, who's a great saxophonist, great photographer, great videographer. That dude's great at everything. Right. Yeah, he's a Renaissance man. He's one of those freaks. Um, but so you you put out these really cool videos of some original music, mm-hmm. and I was I was wondering, like I was going into this interview wondering what what was that for? Why did you do that? But you mentioned your, your you want to do this solo EP. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's still on your radar to get this solo record. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. And so, okay. So why, why that, um, is that just to get it out, to get it out of yourself and to scratch that creative itch or yeah, it didn't start with me saying, I'm going to do a solo EP. Uh It started with, I want to put out some videos of me playing my music because most of my favorite musicians are not just players. They're also composers, um, or multi-instrumentalists or whatever. Um, uh, so I've, I've written for years. Like I started writing music in some really goofy form when I was in middle school. I would write like lyrics and guitar riffs and yeah. stuff like that. But I started, like when I was in college, I would write tunes for class and whatever, and I just really dug it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a zillion sketches of tunes and uh, some fully finished things laying around and I was like I need to put this stuff out and it also had to do with the web presence thing like I yeah. want quality videos of me representing myself like who I am creatively right uh, 
out there in the ether. Right. Um, and I mean, that in itself is, can be its own objective, right? Right. Like it doesn't, you, you don't hope to go viral or right. you know, sell a bunch of copies of this record. It's just to like have a representation of you, what you do, yeah. what you would like to do, what you're capable of out there. Yeah. Um, two of my, uh, well, there, there are a zillion influences actually, yeah. but uh, a couple of the big uh, influences behind making myself do that were uh, Sput Seawright from Snarky Puppy, who's like, he's almost like a little bit of a distant mentor to me. Mm-hmm. Like, because a long time ago when they were coming through Birmingham, I sort of did the same thing with him that I did with Fryer. I was just like, hey, I want to be your friend. Like, let me ask you a bunch of questions. <laughs> Will you be my mother? So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so now whenever he comes through town, I hang out with him and ask him, through, ask him questions and stuff. And he's always really inspired me because... Obviously, unbelievable player. He's one of those gospel cats that can do anything. Right. Um, and but he also writes his own music, leads his own band. Um, he was writing tunes for Snarky Puppy back in the day. Yeah. Wrote tunes for Kirk Franklin. Like, uh, and I just thought that was really cool. Um, and then like Brian Blade, he writes his own music. Yeah. He also does a singer songwriter thing. Um, and then aside from people who compose, uh, there's Harry Myrie. He just puts out a a buttload of videos. Right. And I just thought that was really cool. Like I'm not trying to be Harry. I'm not trying to have a whole, um, whole library of educational and and playthrough videos, but I do want some stuff out there. And he, he's a huge inspiration to me. Just like, I think he and I have a really great symbiotic relationship. Uh We live in very different musical universes, but we talk all the time and always light a little bit of a fire under each other's asses. Mm -hmm. Um, and he definitely does that for me because yeah. he's just, he makes me feel like such a lazy ass. God, that dude works so hard. There are it's, those dudes that are just like, how, do you have like 32 hours in your day? Or, oh, you know, man. I could get, I could spend this entire time talking about thoughts on Harry because yeah. Harry, Harry even played a big, uh, a big role in how I approached the St. Paul thing. Mm. Um, but I'll, I'll touch on that in a second. Um, but, uh, yeah, Harry was a big influence in, in me making my own stuff. And then, uh, this is not a musician, but uh, this guy named Kyle Brooks, his handle is Black Cat Tips mm-hmm. here in, in town. He's a street artist, mm-hmm. and he is one of my favorite artists in any medium anywhere in the world. Um, and he is just so prolific. He makes so much work, and his MO is to make people happy. Like, that's all he wants to do with his work. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's his whole thing is so inspiring to me for Christmas a couple of years ago, Aaron got uh, her gift to me was us going to his studio and hanging out with him. I just, I just got to ask him a bunch of questions. Oh, we bought cool. a couple of paintings from him. And yeah. He's just the, the, one of the coolest dudes, such a sweetheart. Um, really, really interesting dude to talk to. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was a huge influence cause he's just always making art. Right. Um, there's, there's this whole idea, especially now with internet culture and all these, you go through Instagram and you just see drummers and musicians just shredding. Yeah. Like they're, it seems like they're fully baked when it, when it comes yeah. out of the oven, you know, right. what you don't see is all the takes that they deleted. Right. But like what I dig about Kyle is that he's just always making work hmm. and he just puts it out there into the ether. Uh, he's not, it doesn't seem like he's worried. It's not that he doesn't care what people think, mm-hmm. but he's not worried about it being perfect. Right. He's, he just wants to get what's in his head out. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really beautiful. Yeah. Um, and, uh, 
that was a huge inspiration. Like I've, I've been waiting for so long to become a quote, better composer or a better drummer or Mm -hmm. whatever. And at a certain point I was just like, you know what? Fuck it. I have these ideas. I'm just going to put them out there. And now I go back and I watch these videos and I think like, I would do that a little differently, but that was a real moment. That was a real, uh, yeah, that was a real slice of time. Yeah. I put in a lot of time, uh, to, to make those things and they came out and they're real. Yeah. Um, like the, the tracks were pre-recorded, but the drumming is a live take. There's no editing. Right. So like even there, there might be some flubs in there or whatever. There aren't. <laughs> but like, but like they're, they're real and I'm proud of it because of that. Yeah. Um, and you started the process. Yeah, like exactly. It's, it's, you know, it, it's, it's a less than perfect product. But if you if you wait for a perfect product, it's never going to exactly. Happen. There will I, never be a perfect product. One of my favorite interviews that we've ever done was with Hubert Payne, uh, who's a little big town drummer. Oh, okay. And Matt Matt Krause, my my partner, did that interview. But oh, cool. Hubert talked about setting up his home studio, and and like I'm I'm in this headspace now. Hubert said I felt like it it wasn't worth embarking on until I had all the gear, until I had all the know how, right? Until I had it built out. And I realized, like, I just have to start. I have to start with something. I have to get, like, totally. two 57s and put them up and just start making noise. And that's what he did. He started the process and just gradually right. refined it and learned more and did more. And Yeah. Um, so I, I think you can take, like you are, you're taking the same approach with your content, with your output. Um, just, like, start the process. Start putting things yeah, out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you know who you know who Lewis Cole is? Yeah. And Knower? Yeah, yeah. Um, I got to open up for him at Smith's Old Bar like a year and a half ago or something like that cool. with this, this this amazing local band called Monkeyer. Yeah, um, Monkeyer. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, we opened up for him, so we got to hang in the green room for a while. And I was asking him questions about his process of making stuff because he's an amazing player. But what's even more astounding to me is the amount of output he has yeah. and the the. Uh, scope of what he does because he does everything in that band. He writes the music, he writes the lyrics, he does all the arrangements for the band, he does all the visuals. Mm-hmm. And I asked him, like, so how did you make your first albums? He said, man, my first albums were on a, uh, they were like a, I think they were on a universal four, four input interface, universal audio four input interface. I don't remember what that one's called, maybe the quad or something yeah, like that. Yeah. But it was that and GarageBand, <laughs> and that was it. Um, and he just made the music. He wasn't worried about it being perfect and he just put it out there. Right. Or, or like, I could go on and on and on. Like Mark Giuliano with his, er, his one of his early albums of that band, Hearnt, or however you say yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, that, like from an audio quality standpoint, that's not a great sounding recording, but the playing is amazing. Right. And it's just so cool and so raw and you can hear that like young energy. Mm-hmm. Just like I have these sounds in my head and they have to get out. Yeah. And I love that. Yeah. Same reason I love Kyle Brooks's artwork. He's just like, I have these things in my head and they need to get out. Right. And so I'm gonna put them out in the world. I think that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. And they'll garner a reaction. <laughs> Totally. You know, I think I think that's what an artist like Kyle Brooks. I mean, he's he's not looking for attention. He's just kind of looking, like you said, to make people happy. He's looking for yeah, that is his MO. Feedback, input. Like, here's my thing. What do you think? Right. <laughs> or don't think. I don't right. care. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I I struggle with that. Like, what to what to put out there, and I'm I'm hypercritical of, um, I, like I I think I'm more critical of audio and video quality than I am of my own playing oh, yeah. <laughs> and maybe yeah. it should be the other way around. Um, 
But yeah, like I'll I'll you know video something at a gig or whatever, and I'm like, oh well, that that sounded good, but yeah. it just looks like shit. Or <laughs> oh, I feel <laughs> you. Know? The cool thing about Instagram is that it was apparently okay to put up stuff that looks like dog shit. Yeah, it's totally know? okay. It's, yeah, it's eminently okay. Uh, unfortunately, um, yeah. Fuck. Uh, <laughs> Um, so what's, what's, what does 2019 look like for you? Is there more St. Paul stuff is, do you know yet? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're doing, um, we've basically got, we've got a a run down to Florida next weekend. Mm -hmm. Um, just three dates in Florida and then we're off the rest of December, pretty much all of January. And then there's some, uh, then we do a couple more U S runs. It's like, something like two weeks on a week off, something like that for February and March. And then I can't remember what's announced and what's not right. I know Australia is announced. So we're doing the Byron, Byron Bay blues festival in Sydney. That's going to be amazing. Um, uh, but yeah, it's, there's definitely more St. Paul stuff coming up, which is really exciting. Sounds like you're the guy. Uh, I guess I'm the guy. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Uh, at least through Australia. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, they they asked me to to come on and, and play and play with them. So right, uh, and that's, that's it's, it's so weird. Like it, when you know when you're in that position, it's like I, for <laughs> for me at least, I I crave kind of the um, you know the sit down, look you in the eye, like mm-hmm. we want you to be the guy. Right. <laughs> there there was that sort of was there. There was like. Um, so we we did the rehearsals, we did the gigs, and it was going great. And then I heard murmurings from some of the guys, like, oh, I think you'll be around. And I was like, well, whatever. I'm not going to think past this tour. I'm going to play the shit out of this right. tour, and that is the extent of what I'm wasting brain energy on right. or spending brain energy on. Uh, and um, then Paul sat me down and was like, hey, we want you to we want you to play for us. That's awesome. I was like, that's yeah. Okay. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good. <laughs> um, and I took, you know, I have a little bit of PTSD from the Nico Moon thing. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. But uh, after thinking about it a little bit, I was like, yeah, let's go. Like, I really love the music, and I love the guys. Like, I've never, uh, I've never been on a tour of this scale where everybody got along so well. It's like a big family. The crew, the band, everybody likes each other. Right. There's nobody in the entire crew that I wouldn't want to like go to lunch with. Right. Um, right. Which is great. Yeah. Um, and my, like my point with that was, you know, some, sometimes you get that conversation, yeah. but a, a lot of times you don't. Right. They they just kind of say, hey, can you do this gig? Can you do this tour? Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and you you find yourself, or at least I find myself mm. in this in this kind of self imposed limbo. Right. It's like, well, they, yeah. I mean, they're calling me for the gigs, but I haven't gotten the sit down, look me in the eye. Right. They yeah, want me yeah. to be the guy. <laughs> um, and I, like sometimes it happens, and sometimes it, it doesn't. And sure, I probably overthink it, like I overthink everything else. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's, I mean, it's it's cool. It's cool that you actually got that conversation. I f- I feel like it's important. Like, if if a band or an artist, I mean, like any band or any artist should want their people to invest in them. Right. Sure. And in order to get somebody to invest in you, it, it certainly helps to sit them down and say, sure, like, yeah. you are valued. We want you to be a part of this team. Like, mm-hmm. um, 
But I, I, I guess it, I, I feel like that doesn't happen often enough in, yeah. in, in the music business. Especially now, like, there's a lot of, we need a drummer for this tour. We need right. a player for this tour. We need a player for this record. Right. Um, but the cool thing about St. Paul is that it's a band. Yeah. It's not Paul and a bunch of players. Right. It's a band. So, like, they want somebody who uh, is into it and uh, is, like, willing to commit um, it's. I mean, it really is like a family. Yeah, like, yeah. They are all in it together. They they write together. Um, the, yeah, the writing is collaborative, which is really really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and but it's just a conversation. Like we want to invest in you. Will you invest in us? Yeah, exactly. And I think the answer more often than not is is yes, especially yeah. for somebody like me. Like I I like to feel valued. I like sure. to feel part of the team. And you know, if if somebody's feeding me gigs, I'll say yes. Thank you for the gig. But if somebody sits me down and is like, you know, we want you to be part of this team. I'm right. Like, Fuck yes. Team blank. Let's go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that does make a huge difference. Yeah. Like, because it's so easy as a side man sometimes to feel undervalued or yeah. underappreciated. Yeah. Or, or replaceable or expendable or uh, any of that. Yeah. And it doesn't. It really doesn't take much. It just takes like, hey, we like what you do. We want you, if you like what we do, we want you to be on board. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, cool, man. 2019 Australia. Yeah, that's gonna be crazy. Um, there, there are a few other exciting things in the works that I don't know if I can say yet. I don't, yeah. know, I don't know if they're announced. Um, yeah. But yeah, 2019 is gonna be crazy. Um, lots of road time. So anything you see on the St. Paul website, I will be on it. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be a lot of fun, man. And then in addition to that, I will be in the, in the gaps trying to finish my solo, writing my solo record and, yeah. and trying to get that out there. Playing, um, them, playing them Emerald gigs. Playing some Emerald gigs. <laughs> I'm playing with Sam Birchfield. Yeah, I'm yeah, actually yeah. playing with his wife, Pip the Pansy, right. uh, at Vinyl here in Atlanta on the 15th. They're doing a lot of stuff. They are doing a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, I'm playing this Birchfield family Christmas show at Eddie's on the 21st. Oh, cool. Um, you know, what was so cool. Ruby, uh, I was in New York like two weeks ago and Ruby Bell and the Sulfonics played, uh, Rockwood mm-hmm. and neither one of us had any idea, but, but Sam and Pip the Pansy mm-hmm. played directly after us. Oh, what? On stage two. That's crazy. Yeah. We just like, we, we just came face to face at That's stage two wild. in New York and we were like, ATL represents. That's crazy, <laughs> man. Yeah. Um, it was fun. Well, man, we're 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 happy for you. We're proud of you. It's, thanks, buddy. It's, it's great to see one of the one of the tribe go out there and do and and uh, do damage. <laughs> thanks, buddy. I'm doing as much as I can. Yeah, man. It was great talking with you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks man. for coming and thanks for the for the cocktails. Yeah, of course. Yeah. This a tip for any future interviewees: like bring bring whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> right on, man. Good to talk to you. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me, buddy. Cheers. Thanks again to Kevin for that hang. Check him out on tour with St. Paul and the Broken Bones. It sounds like a lot of people in a lot of places are going to have a chance to catch them in 2019. Please subscribe to Working Drummer Podcast on Stitcher and iTunes. And if you do, please leave us a rating and review. That's very helpful to us. We also have some episodes available on YouTube with more coming all the time. So check us out there. Also follow us on Instagram at Working Drummer Podcast. And don't hesitate to reach out to us on any platform if you have any questions or comments we always appreciate hearing from you 
Once again, we hope to see you for our live 200th episode in Nashville on January 10th. More details to come on that. Come on back next week for Matt Krause's interview. Thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.